Today we are joined by Professor Jocelyn Stacy of UBC Law. Many of you know Professor Stacy, so I'll provide just a brief introduction. Professor Stacy's research focuses on environmental law crises and the way that the law can create, regulate, and prevent these events. She investigates the tensions and overlap between environmental assessment, climate change, emergency power, and the rule of law. Her drawing of connections between a deliberative democratic model of the rule of law is an idea that I take to have fascinating implications both for major project regulation and beyond. And you'll see in this podcast, it doesn't take very much time for her to get to and get beyond a dicey-based rule of law model. She's worked extensively with First Nations on disasters, emergency power, and indigenous jurisdiction. Uh, her first book, The Constitution of Environmental Emergency, is available. And if you'd like to delve into her work further and her thinking further, it certainly would be the place to go. Um, I, In this introduction, uh, I'll read a paragraph from uh, the introduction to that book, which shows the way in which she sees environmental law uh, and her thinking about environmental law, but also the way environmental law can become a jumping off point for a broader discussion about law on a fundamental level and about the rule of law that will have resonance across you know, any consideration of law on a deep level. So Professor Stacy writes, uh, this book distinguishes itself from most environmental law scholarship in that it does not attempt to solve any particular environmental problem. Rather, it articulates a theory of how the exercise of public authority can be governed by a democratic conception of the rule of law, elaborated as it needs to be for the special challenges posed by environmental issues. Environmental issues are in many ways an ideal perspective from which to revisit our assumptions about democracy, law, and the rule of law. One scholar has described environmental law as hot law because the agreed frames, legal and otherwise, for how we understand and act in the world are in a constant state of flux and contestation. Environmental issues are complex in almost every way, scientifically, politically, and disciplinarily. They challenge fundamental assumptions about what it means to be governed by law, which typically transpires through general, relatively stable rules enacted in advance by the legislatures and interpreted by the courts. In other words, the complexity of environmental issues presents a fundamental problem for understanding how law can both constitute and constrain the state's regulatory authority over the environment. So with that brief introduction, hopefully uh, we'll be able to tie Professor Stacy's work into some of the themes we explored in the last class about environmental assessment and what it ought to be doing, what it can do, and what it does. And so without further introduction, I'll go now to my conversation with Professor Stacy. So welcome to Professor Jocelyn Stacy. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Stacy. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And as I've uh, told Professor Stacy, the class has read her article on the precautionary principle and the rule of law. And I haven't um, talked yet with the class, but there is a, a newer article that's very salient to some of the ideas of the class. And we'll be looking at that in a, in a future uh, class. Um, and so without further ado, I wanted to get into our discussion. And 
start off on the question of the precautionary principle and its role in major project regulation. And I wonder if you might be able to just speak a little bit on that subject, Professor. Yeah, for sure. So let's start with um, just going back to what the precautionary principle actually is. Um, and uh, and then I'll try to be a little bit more specific on the role that it, it plays or might play in major project regulation. So really the most sort of commonly used version of the precautionary principle is the text contained in the Rio Declaration and principle 15. It stated, where there are threats of serious or irreversible damage, lack of full scientific certainty shall not be used as a reason for postponing cost-effective measures to prevent environmental degradation. So that's sort of the most commonly relied on version of the precautionary principle and certainly the one that has made its way in some limited way into the Canadian domestic law context. Um, and I think it's important to, to go back to that. I, I really wish the precautionary principle had a very robust role in Canadian environmental law. It, it doesn't, and I'll talk about that in a second. But it's often the case that skeptics or critics of the precautionary principle have something much different in mind than what the, what you know its sort of common formulation actually says. Um, so it is one of several environmental principles that address really the forward-looking nature of much of environmental law and much of environmental decision making. So that means you know most of the decisions that we're that we make in the environmental context are not about past harms, but are ones that are seeking to prevent or at least manage uh, future environmental impacts, right, before they, they take place. And so the precautionary principle is one of the principles in that suite of principles that deal with preventing environmental degradation. And the other piece of the precautionary principle that um, is why it's attracted a lot of, I think, attention, particularly from academics, is that it is the, the, one of the places in environmental law where you really see a direct relationship between a what looks to be a legal principle and science and the and sort of confronting the fact that environmental decision making necessarily and I think you know ideally relies on scientific information or scientific knowledge about uh, the environment and our impacts on it uh, and so that because it you know the precautionary principle tends to be controversial because you know, because it's forward looking, because it's being implemented in the world of the administrative state, right? So in the context of administrative decision making, and because it's directly engaging with scientific decision making and the limits of that. So there are all of these features of the precautionary principle that I think make it really kind of difficult to understand what it means in practice. And it makes it sort of controversial in terms of um, some of the commentary that you'll see out there about uh, what it requires and where it's well suited to be implemented. Um, so let's maybe talk for a second about how it applies um, in the context of major project regulation. And I suppose the first thing to note is what the first, what the precautionary principle requires in any particular instance is really dependent on the particular jurisdiction in which it's being implemented and the legal tradition right of that jurisdiction the legal culture of that jurisdiction and the particular administrative context right so that text set out in the rio declaration doesn't tell us much about what to do in any particular case right its interpretation is going to be informed by general principles of administrative law 
or civil law or where, wherever you happen to be at that particular time. And so its status in the Canadian context, um, back in 2001, the Supreme Court of Canada recognized the precautionary principle as an emerging principle of customary international law. We haven't had a clear statement from the Supreme Court since then. Um, but one would think that, you know, 19 years have passed and surely it's there if it was emerging then that we're at the place of being a custom recognized as a customary principle of customary international law. Um, and uh, but it is a provision, it is a principle rather that is incorporated into the vast majority of environmental statutes in the country. And so if you look at CIA 2012, Canadian Environmental Assessment Act 2012, you'll see that a precautionary approach is right there in the purpose of the statute and that it is repeated again in the mandate that's given to public decision makers under that statute. So that is um, section four of CIA 2012. So, and I'll just read you subsection two. The government of Canada, the minister, the agency, federal authorities and responsible authorities in the administration of this act must exercise their powers, must, right? Must exercise their powers in a manner that protects the environment and human health and applies the precautionary principle. Okay, so there's clearly a link here, right? Between that, you know, statement in the Rio Declaration and what's being required of decision makers in the environmental assessment process and approving major projects in Canada. And that language has been carried over to the Impact Assessment Act at the federal level. So what could that look like, uh, that requirement of the precautionary principle look like in the context of an actual environmental assessment at that approval stage? Well, just to make it a little bit more specific, because I know we're still at a very abstract level, it could mean, it could factor into um, how the actual assessment of particular impacts or valued components, depending on the language that's used for an environmental assessment. So we're trying to figure out the impacts of a project on a particular species or population within a species, right? And maybe the precautionary approach speaks to what you do with scientific uncertainty around those potential impacts. The precautionary principle might speak to whether um, what you do in terms of making a finding about whether there are likely significant adverse impacts, right? So it could happen at that sort of stage of the analysis. Um, it could lead to the imposition of particular mitigation measures. Um, those are normally associated with the pr principle of prevention, but you could imagine the precautionary principle requiring sort of going be above and beyond sort of known um, measures for mitigating known impacts. And it could also inform a decision to withhold an approval for a project. Um, so those are, I think, the range of possibilities for how the precautionary principle could feature into the different stages of an environmental assessment. So hopefully that's enough to get us started thinking about uh, the precautionary principle in the context of environmental assessment, at least, and environmental assessment of major projects. Absolutely. That's very helpful. <laughs> um, one minor, maybe not minor, but perhaps minor question that I, I wanted mm. to ask, which isn't one of the ones that I had emailed you earlier, but um, <laughs> sorry, not to put in the spot, but in my experience, I've found a bit of a push and pull as between the precautionary principle on the one hand and the idea of adaptive management on the other, where a proponent will say, in effect, hey, if there's uncertainty here, don't worry, we'll deal with it if and when it arises. And I was wondering if you saw 
attention between those ideas or if the idea of an adaptive management sort of framework for a project could be consistent with the precautionary approach? Yeah. So I certainly think that tension is one that I think has been created through Canadian environmental law, unfortunately, right? And so um, it plays out because uh, I play the way that I see it playing out is that, you know, there is a line of cases, particular coming from the federal court, that think that the precautionary have interpreted the precautionary principle as having, quote, potentially paralyzing effects, right? So if there's any uncertainty about uh, 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 potentially irreversible um, or catastrophic environmental damage, that a project should not be approved. And that, so that's the interpretation that's being given to the precautionary principle in environmental assessment cases when they go up for review at the federal courts. And that's really prob- problematic. And, um, you know, in the overview that I ga- just gave, you know, you'll, you can see that that's not what the precautionary principle said. It could be a lot more sophisticated and nuanced than that. In fact, probably never would mean that it can be, have that sort of paralyzing effect that the federal court seems to think it has. And so if you have that view of the precautionary principle, then you necessarily need to have some counterbalance to that. And I think that's where, where adaptive management has come to play some role in that in terms of the sort of status of Canadian environmental case law. Now, the problem with adaptive management, adaptive management is a, an approach that comes from uh, uh, ecology, right? And thinking about complex adaptive systems, the work of Buzz Hollings on anarchy and complex adaptive systems. And so there is a really close connection in terms of how do we deal with decision making in the face of scientific uncertainty, they should work together. Um, But the other problem that happens with adaptive management and the way in which it's been again interpreted and implemented in Canada is that it's basically been treated as a bit of a license for a don't worry, we'll figure it out later. Right? As opposed to uh, actually, no, here is what a program looks like for, um, for learning, right, from imp- by imp- learning by doing, and then implementing the findings of the learning that's taken place, right? So you can imagine a much more rigorous approach to adaptive management that would allow for um, really reducing the, you know, adaptive management should work to reduce the scope of scientific uncertainty over time, right? So they should be working together when implemented, um, right? So the precautionary principle fills that gap kind yeah. of temporarily. Adaptive management, you know, helps to, you know, in some ways shrink some gaps over time. That's a, Thank you. Yeah, that's <laughs> excellent explanation. I've never, never heard articulate that before. It's very mm. helpful. Um, so when in your discussion of the precautionary principle um, it does seem to be a term where different definitions are claimed and if in an odd way if you claim an overly strong precautionary principle it becomes um a bit of a straw man that you well we can't just freeze all development so precautionary principle is is gone and a theme that we're going to be coming to in our class uh, is again on this question of sort of claiming a term. And I think few terms are more sort of right for um, for claiming than the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a term that means a lot of things to a lot of different people um, to suit a lot of different ends, perhaps. 
Uh, but I wonder if you could expand on your, your thinking on how the rule of law and the precautionary principle um, relate and interact. Yeah, absolutely. So I spend a lot of time thinking about the rule of law from the perspective of um, uh, the common law legal system and the requirements of the common law. Uh, and, you know, as I'll explain in a minute, that what I see as a real connection between common law principles and the principles of deliberative democracy. So my understanding of the rule of law, I'm trying to sort of boil it down and to be as concise as possible, is a requirement on public officials when they are claiming to act with legal authority to publicly justify their decisions in uh, relation to core constitutional principles. And so in, a, in the Canadian common law system, those core constitutional principles are principles of fairness and reasonableness, right, from a common law system. And so, and, and that, you know, that is sort of inherent to the system itself, right? And so one of the strengths of, one of the purported strengths of common law constitutionalism is that that is, like, that is the constitutional bedrock in a sense. Like we, there's no, um, you know, that can't be manipulated by the executive, right? And you can't change the text of that, that the courts are going to guard that fundamental, those fundamental constitutional principles. Um, and that's an idea that comes from Albert Van Dicey. Um, but that thinking has to be sort of modified for the modern context uh, and understanding the role of the administrative state in, in, in our modern world and the role of the administrative state really in upholding the rule of law. Um, and so I wouldn't claim to be sort of Dicean in the way that I understand the rule of law. Uh, and so what I think is crucial about those requirements of fair decision making and ensuring that a decision is reasonable, um, uh, you know, in relation to those that are affected is that it treats um, those that are affected by decisions as being in a relationship with lawmakers, right? So it's not an understanding of law as a command where if that command is made and, you know, is made in the, through the right forum that we all have to fall in line, but rather it's a relationship and that there are obligations that flow both ways, right? So if public decision makers publicly justify their decision uh, in, a, in a way that has a fair process and is reasonable, um, then the obligation on those that are affected by that decision is to obey that decision or to contest it. Right. And so the rule of law necessarily requires a forum in which that contestation can take place. And then I become, you know, if I'm contesting that decision, then I'm participating in our legal system. Right. I have agency in that. I get to put forward my views about what the law requires and what the rule of law requires in this particular forum. And so, um, you know, it's an understanding of the rule of law that I think is connected to deliberative democracy, which really focuses on the role of citizens in making and uh, making collective decisions in the public interest, right? So it's an, a school of thought, a school of sort of democratic thought that um, foregrounds the role of, you know, ordinary folks, like not to the exclusion of experts, but like doesn't discount the role of everyday individuals in playing a role in, in collective decision making and is one that foregrounds the requirement of giving reasons. So rather than just thinking your job as a citizen is to vote, um, and that's where democratic accountability happens, deliberative democracy understands democratic 
legitimacy flowing from the giving of reasons that respect, um, you know, respect those subject to those decisions as being free and equal in the language of deliberative Democrats. So there's a connection there in terms of the view of, you know, people subject to public decisions is that we are agents, right? That we are entitled to reasons, that we're participating in that process, um, and that, uh, you know, that, that we are participating in a way that allows for us to either continue to commit to existing understandings of what the rule of law requires, or to participate in the updating or fleshing out or re-articulation of those requirements in a particular case. So that wasn't as much of a nutshell as I suppose I hoped it would have been on the, what, how I understand the rule of law and its connection to deliberative democracy. But maybe I'll just add two, two things that bring in major projects and, and the precautionary principle. So I actually understand um, the precautionary principle as being fundamentally connected to how we uphold that requirement of the rule of law in environmental decision making. Because how else, like, how do you make a publicly justified decision in the absence of a solid factual foundation, right? That's what the precautionary principle is addressing, right? And so that's the role, understanding it as a legal principle, that's the role I see it playing, is helping us ensure that that relationship between state and those affected by the environmental decision, understanding that that reciprocal role is a uh, reciprocal relationship is being upheld, that we're treating those affected by decisions as agents that are entitled to an explanation for this decision that affects their interest and that they get a role in making that, in that decision-making process. And so we can talk more about that if, if, you, if you like. Um, and I guess I'll bring in environmental assessment into this too, because I also think of environmental assessment in the current landscape of environmental law as playing a really important role in upholding the rule of law. And I suppose this is unfortunately so because it is one of the only sites of environmental decision-making across the country where we consistently have some transparent process where there is a transparent evaluation of the potential benefits and harms that flow from uh, environmental decisions and where there is some measure of public participation in that process. So in the current system that we have, environmental assessment you know, plays, plays a really important role for that public justification um, to happen, right? For upholding the rule of law. Absolutely. Um, There's a lot to unpack as a <laughs> fascinating, uh, biggest nut to ever have a shell. <laughs> but, um, one thing that does, um, I, I wonder if you might comment a bit further on, is um, within this deliberative democratic framework, um, how do you see the the possibility or maybe the difficulty in um, uh, such an approach when you have both um, Indigenous traditional knowledge and scientific um, the Western scientific approaches that are sort of both to be considered. Does that make deliberation difficult when there's very different sort of worldviews and fields of knowledge that are brought together? Or is there a, a way and a process to reconcile that within a yeah. rule of law framework? 
Look, that's such an important question. And um, I suppose that my answer to that is maybe a bit cheeky, which is what is the alternative to deliberation, yeah. right? Like we can't pretend that these are all commensurate things where we can enter them into some formula and come out with an answer that's somehow legitimate, right? And so I, I think deliberation is sort of the best we have from uh, when we're talking about decisions that are being made in the public interest that affect such a vast range of interests and rights and um, you know possible futures and that engage with um, really different relationships that we have with the environment and to each other right so i think sort of deliberation is um, you know there's no formula for how how to implement that right but it should be you know really guided by the fundamentals of treating one another as um, as equal and equally entitled to reasons that are not entirely self-interested right that are re reasons that are public regarding in the sense that they're setting out some vision of the public interest now that doesn't mean that everybody agrees at the end of the day of course not not when we're dealing with really significant decisions like major projects um, but it is about how do we craft a process for making legit decisions that have both um, uh, democratic and legal legitimacy right within the canadian system now, the question about whether those are valid decisions from an Indigenous legal perspective, I think, is a slightly different question, right? So I think we can certainly strive within our within the understanding of the common law that I've set out to do better fulfilling this. But then I also think there's a different question about, well, if we're actually approaching these kinds of decisions on a nation-to-nation -nation basis, then what does the process for that lo look like where we're dealing with the Canadian legal system and Indigenous legal orders as both relevant legal orders that are informing the way in which this decision is made. And that's a, that's a, I think a different question because that requires, you know, folks like us trained in the Canadian legal system to understand what the, what the conditions of authority are, what the rule of law or democratic authority or the equivalence of that are within a, uh, um, you know, within a system of government and a legal system that is not one that we've been trained within, right? Uh, and then figuring out, you know, a consent-based process for bringing those um, those two different systems together for making decisions over um, land, air, water, right? That affect um, people governed by both of those ecosystems. So that's a, that's a I think that's a, um, a a question that has, that imposes a different set of sort of legal demands on us that can't be totally answered by you know, my common law understanding of the rule of law. Yeah, although it would seem to me that um, your understanding of the rule of law, which encompasses process and is not just a, it's some, there's a lot of people who seem to be really grabbing the helm of Dicean rule of law these days in the mid law framework and positing it as supporting a kind of correctness review and then their rule of law demands one outcome for and there's a correct answer for every legal situation and that's not the rule of law framework i hear coming from you at all that's it's right. the yeah and so within a, a process forward rule of law that looks at these core constitutional values um it does seem like there would be a lot more room for um considering indigenous law uh, and giving true force to um, indigenous jurisdiction and constitutionalism and perhaps ultimately identifying a shared constitutional order that incorporates um, indigenous law as well as uh, 
you know, the the Western legal tradition. Yeah, well, thanks for that. I'd I'd like to think so. And I'm certainly open to revising my view on whether, you know, whether my, uh, my understanding of the rule of law is or isn't receptive to um, engaging with Indigenous legal orders, because I think that's a, a really important question that we all need to be asking ourselves all, all the time, right, um, when we're dealing with a legal system in a settler state. Yeah, yeah. I, perhaps that does lead to a bit of a springboard into another question um, that we had uh, discussed perhaps before um, on the notion of veto mm-hmm. within the environmental assessment framework and um, the, the sort of the question of the degree to which um, the idea that there may be situations where you need to secure um, or, or where a failure to secure an agreement from an Aboriginal group might mean a project doesn't go ahead and whether that ought to be seen as a veto. And I wonder if you might expand on those thoughts a bit from yeah. the work. Sure. So, um, so let's go back to deliberative democracy for a second and for the, the thinking that happens uh, with respect to um, the school of thought, really schools of thought. There's lots of um, differing views within this, within this big um, sort of body of, of knowledge that falls under the banner of deliberative democracy. But one of the fundamental pieces of um, a deliberative democracy is that you know, when we engage with each other in relation to public decisions is that we're approaching that um, with the view that we're all entitled to, you know, we're all approaching this as equals, right? And we're entitled to, you know, um, different views about what the public interest might be, for example. Uh, And so what that means is that you have to have a bit of openness to being persuaded that you're not right, right? So this is different than voting where you just compile right everybody's answer to the question right when you're deliberating you're approaching this as sort of a shared uh process where we're going to figure out the answer to this question together now i'm making that sound really kind of nice and um (laughs) you know like a pleasant experience it doesn't necessarily need to be it happens in all sorts of different forms but at the very least it requires an openness to being persuaded of somebody else's view now, if you are persuaded by somebody else's view, that doesn't mean that they've exercised a veto over you, right? And so even though the outcome at the end of the day may, may be that you walk away with exactly the opposite outcome that you thought you were, you were seeking at the beginning of the day, that's different than a veto, right? That's a decision-making constraint, right? That the, um, you know, it, or it's a participatory constraint if you're the individual engaging in that process. It's a decision-making constraint if you're the decision-maker that is making a publicly regarding decision, right, that fulfills this understanding of the rule of law, right? Um, and so um, that, to me, it, those, are, those are different things. And if, even though in some cases there might be the same outcome, right, which is that a project doesn't go ahead, you know, in the major project context, right? Uh, and I guess the challenge that we see in the environmental context in Canada is that uh, very, very, very rarely is the outcome that the Crown is persuaded, you know, whole cloth by the legitimate views that are being brought by Indigenous peoples that are affected by major project decisions. And so when you look at that systematically, right, that is a, that is a failure 
on the part of a deliberative democratic understanding about how the crown should be entering into um, uh, this kind of decision-making process. Absolutely. And, and perhaps that even springboards into the next question, which is sort of if there is not a, um, a real much of a chance of a crown engaging in a deliberative process with a real openness to to a no for for mm -hmm. a project um, that may tend to encourage um, use of the process as an end in and of itself in the sense that maybe your best bet if you're opposed to a project is to make the approval process as hard as possible even if you know that at the end of the day, there's going to be a, a yes at the end you might be able to drive up the costs or have enough problems that that it doesn't practically happen and indeed on the trans mountain pipeline expansion that came rather close to that um mm -hmm. maybe with the the, uh, the the sale of the pipeline um and so i wonder though about um within a deliberative um democratic framework um, do you worry about people misusing the process um, in a calculated way to cause sort of delay as opposed to get at a deliberative decision? Yeah. So I think you're you're right to point out sort of the strategic factors that go into the way in which this operates in Canada. And I think, you know, I focus on Canadian environmental assessment almost exclusively as well. But I think there are a couple of maybe elephants in the room that we should just like put out there in terms of what shapes are thinking about this. So the first is that, you know, controversial major projects in Canada are almost always with respect to uh, extractive industries and oil and gas in particular, right, where the benefits that are coming from those projects are flowing to faraway places, right, by and large, um, corporate shareholders and transnational companies, right? And so there's, you know, there are a couple of, like when we're thinking about projects, um, um, I, I just don't want those kinds of projects to occupy or to exclude the possibility of thinking about what this would look like if we were not dealing with controversial extractive industry projects by transnational companies, right? Uh, and so if we're dealing with the assessment of projects where you've got local, you know, local communities as owners, partners in those projects, where we're dealing with decarbonizing the economy and we're dealing with renewable projects, I think the assessment process looks quite different. I'm happy to be shown, you know, examples that, that suggest both ways. But I think that is something that we should keep, we should keep in mind, right? That um, often these, um, the projects that, that you and I are thinking about um, really, you know, they're just mired in all of these bigger challenges, right, that then get fed into challenges around climate change, uh, challenges around, um, uh, you know, uh, Indigenous consent, challenges around, um, you know, where the benefits are flowing for these big projects, right? Um, so I want us to keep that in mind. And I think the other feature that is maybe a bit parochial in terms of Canadian environmental assessment is that our law on Canadian environmental assessment focuses almost exclusively on project-based assessment. And there's nobody, like that's not necessarily best practice in terms of environmental assessment, right? We can imagine other 
forms of decision making uh, and forums for decision making around uh, around important environmental decisions like this that don't happen at like the 11th hour, right? Yeah. Which is the project proponent coming in with a very specific project. And in fact, we really should be requiring parliament or the legislature to start making some tough choices about what direction we're going on in terms of in terms of resource development and in terms of areas for resource, resource development. And then it makes it so much easier at the end of the day for everybody, proponents perhaps especially, that these concerns don't all get downloaded into a, a process that is not intended and not designed to deal with these things, right? So I think there are very real limits, right, in terms of how we implement environmental assessment law in Canada right now. Um, and that you're right, that if we were striving to achieve the rule of law, the idea of the rule of law that as I see it in that context, which we absolutely should be doing, it's probably going to bubble up with some, you know, unintended consequences from that because there are better ways to design uh, environmental decision making that would implement a deliberative vision, right, of making controversial important but controversial environmental decisions. So one example of that, just to be a little bit more concrete, you know, we do have a mechanism for regional assessment under the Impact Assessment Act and probably under some provincial environmental assessment legislation as well. And that's very rarely used, right? But regional assessment is, you know, exactly what it sounds like. You pick a sort of region that maybe they're contemplating sort of opening up for some resource development, or maybe that's the place for aquaculture, or it's going to be a place for a solar, right? Like if you're thinking about it on a regional level, then you can start to make some of those tougher policy choices about the direction of that region and assess the impacts of that before you're getting to a specific project where parties are going to get entrenched around a yes no about that project right if you're dealing at it sort of upstream at the level of a regional assessment then there's the possibility at least of thinking about more creative solutions where everybody is sort of walking away somewhat happy Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then I suppose the burden is maybe lifted from individual proponents somewhat to deal with these systemic issues that are right. shunted off because nobody else wants to deal with Aboriginal rights or climate change until one proponent is sort of faced with it. Um, Professor, thank you so very much for this, uh, taking the time to, to speak with, with us. And I, on behalf of the class, uh, just thank you for your your insight and um, and just a wonderful addition to our course. Well, thanks so much for having me, and best of luck to you and your class this semester. It's a great class. I wish I could be a student in it. <laughs> thank you so much.